welcome everyone to the 53rd episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's up, What's up Nick? I'm good. I'm good. It's getting cold in Montreal now, so uh, the weather's finally turning. And, um, with, you know, like hopefully that it's an indication that we'll have a negative correlation or we'll have a positive shift in the overall movement of our uh, city and uh, the way things are going. Well, I think I think if there's a frigid winter, we're going to see higher commodity prices, right? That, that's, something that's, that. be, that's something that's uh, it's been the talk of the town, especially in the public markets. And but, it's uh, funny because now we're uh, now you have this expansion where people are starting to fixate on coal production to offset these energy issues, which goes back to this whole, you know, take caring of the planet, but all the the policies and mandates from the left side trying to force a short term outcome is actually creating more problems for the planet Earth. So it shows you how politics can disrupt economic realities. Definitely. And I think it's a really interesting point to bring up that, um, unfortunately, globally, and most people are not aware of it, but liberty and freedom are under attack, Um, both from a political, uh, economic, technological standpoint, uh, the likes of which we probably haven't seen since like, you know, early, uh, mid World War II, I would say. So um, again, that's a perfect segue for our guest here. Um, without further ado, this gentleman is the founder of the Brownstone Institute, which is an independent editorial consulting uh, services, who also served as the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also the author of many thousands of articles in the scholarly and properly press, as well as he's, I, I, he's also written about eight books in five languages. Most recently, just came out, I believe it was this year, called <laughs> Liberty or Lockdown. And he's also the editor of The Best of Mises. Our favorite economist, right, Nick? And he's spoken wildly on topics from economics, technology, social, philosophy, and culture. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Jeffrey A. Tucker. Hey, so great to be here. Thank you. So, Jeffrey, to start off, we'd love to know, can you start off by talking about your history, how you grew up, what developed your, <laughs> your you know, like, how did you get to this point in time? How did you get to economics? What shifted wow. your, your perspective to get to this stage of life? Because obviously, you know, a story, the background is a good way to understand the macro picture of an individual. The story begins in 1638. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's actually funny. Did you see this movie called The Crucible? Uh, I've heard of it, but no, I haven't. That's good. It's just all about Salem witch trials. So I'm watching this, okay. this thing and, and the big high executioner judge, you know, comes from Boston, the guy who finally orders the death of like 16 witches and a few men or whatever. And his name is John Danforth. And I was like, John Danforth, John Danforth. Oh, that's Polly's grandfather. And Polly married Elijah Briggs, uh, who was uh, 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 the grandfather of uh, of the man who who immigrated from Massachusetts into Texas in 1830 and eventually married um, uh, a Stroud and then um, and then then uh, the Stroud married the Tucker and that was my my fraternal uh, grandmother so I'm like wow so this guy's like six times removed my my grandfather <laughs> I felt awful. <laughs> it's like, oh, jeez. Quite my, a story. My, my ancestors are burning witches, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I was I was raised in Texas, and um, uh, I don't, you know, it's, it was funny because when I was in college, I wasn't that. I didn't. I actually had two jobs, right? I mean, it was like I was managing a men's store, and then also playing. I was gigging around in the evening and and jazz clubs because uh, I was part of a. Uh, played trombone and jazz ensembles and kind of paying my way through school, which no one does these days, right? 
Um, what is jazz, uh, right? Nobody. Were you still, were you still wearing the bow tie back then, or was, was that when uh, it started? I don't, my my mom has pictures of me from like, when I was two wearing the bow tie. So I don't know. Uh, I think I adopted bow, bow tie like full time, you know, and when I was about sixteen, uh, and mainly because I got tired of ties flopping into my suits, and you know, it's like mm. okay, I should okay, wear okay. a long thing. We're gonna wear a short thing. It's you know, purely practical, you know. But um, uh, and then um, I think I think I read Rand, you know, first when I was in high school. But you know, I think I think uh, I was like a typical sort of youthful Randy in the sense that you know she teaches you a lot of big words and 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 uh, teaches you um, about the glories of yourself. So you're kind of like you know into that. And so I became a bit of a fake philosopher, you know, for the for the for the purposes of of, of, of courting girls, you know, when I was a, a junior or senior in high school, you know, but. Um, <laughs> um but really it was my junior year in college i got fascinated by the world of ideas and 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 mostly i just got intrigued by trying to understand something that hardly anybody really understands which is like why liberty is better than order or imposed order and and that's a fascinating thing it's like the most implausible thing like how is it that society becomes more prosperous more orderly more um universally vital and uh flourishing under under conditions under which there's no plan uh when nobody's in charge you know uh it's like like an anarchy is this is the uh the source of order in the world i mean that that is a weird sort of uh, realization you know um and and it's lost on most intellectuals. Has always been lost on most intellectuals, except, except for this great liberal tradition, you know. So, mm. I just got sort of obsessed by that. And I would say, I think back over my life, I've, you know, I've had many obsessions, you know, from from shower heads to doorstops to uh, you know um, to, to to bourbon to I don't, I don't know what. Um, but the one thing that's been consistent for my whole life has been seeking to understand, you know, the desiderata. Uh, of, of freedom uh, and, and what that means for human life. Uh, for everything, right? Techno technology and, and, uh, and uh, economic stability and prosperity, and then most recently for public health, you know? Um, so, so and, 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 but look, I'm, I'm really happy to fast forward from there until to March uh, 2020, where my life changed and I'm, yours did probably too. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, all, all our rights were taken away. I mean, it was one of the greatest realizations of my life yeah. for both of us was I really did believe in the perception that I live in Canada. I am a free human being mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, do what mm -hmm. I want. And when this happened, it was one of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. This appears to be one of the biggest lies of my life that I've just discovered that right. we aren't really free. Yeah. And at to yeah. what extent do we really do we really use that word and how do we define it? Mm -hmm. And that's when we started going down this uh, this rabbit hole of classical economics and freedom. Well, you know, it reminds me of the scene from from the opening scene of Godfather One, where the guy goes in and says, you know, I want you to I want you to you know, hurt the man uh, who. Uh, busted my my daughter shattered my daughter's jaw and the godfather said but why'd you go to the police why didn't you come to me first and he said yeah i know you thought you thought there were courts of law you know you thought you could depend on justice from the state but now you come to me and say give me justice you know mm -hmm. well i think we were all a little bit in that position we thought we had freedom we thought the courts would protect us we thought our traditions would protect us, our patriotic songs. Uh, uh, land of the free, the home of the brave. Oh, we're the free country, unlike those bad people over in the East, they're the unfree people. And then, and then we woke up one day and it's like, you can't travel. 
you can't have, uh, you have a limited number of people you're allowed to put into your home. You can't go to church on Easter. Uh, you know, you can't even go to the doctor unless you have COVID. Um, you know, all your favorite, you know, hundreds of thousands of small businesses were destroyed. Yeah. The, the, the schools were shut down with no plan in place for what to do with the kids. So women left the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so we, and all, it's still to this day, there are like 4.3 in the United States, 4.3 missing uh, laborers. Like yeah. People have just dropped out, like demoralization, mass demoralization, drug use, uh, ill health. Uh, it's it's been a social and economic calamity, but here's what's also strange about it: uh, not that many people are even talking about it. Not I mean, I, I mean, when I say not that many people, not too many official sources, right? Yeah, so we've yeah, got yeah. the mainstream media. You turn on the the the, the news, uh, which is just the most ghastly experience uh, to go to a mainstream news channel, and they act like not this is not happening. Okay. Women have been thrown out of the workforce yep. in unprecedented numbers. We've gone, we've we've been set back like 40 years in terms of progress of, of minority employment. Mm -hmm. And and women are back at home taking care of their children and, and homeschooling, you know, okay, that's I guess sort of good, I guess, but you know, homeschooling's been under a cloud for 30 years and now suddenly it's like mandatory. Um and, and people are just not talking about the reality. Now we have these vaccine passports that are excluding whole swaths of people from, from public life on grounds that they're, 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 they're dirty, you know? Mm -hmm. The same basis fund which we initially segregated the races a century ago. So, so the world is literally falling apart. And I mean, we can go into it, mm -hmm. uh, but the supply chains are, are, are yep. sh shattered. The ports are clogged. Uh, there's a huge labor shortage. Inflation... Yeah. is far worse than the data can even keep up with. So all the data we have is now 30 days old. For all we know, we're living in double-digit inflation now. Easily, yeah. You know, and I wanted so to say, they think about it. Another perpetual macro thing that a lot of people seem to ignore is when you have this inflationary problem with a stagnating economy and people's wages are not growing, and you're we're, we're, like, for example, in Montreal, where we at, we doubled our homelessness over the COVID period. Yeah. What people don't realize is when you're in this this position of poverty and you causing inflation, all you're doing is saying to people, well, I can't eat good food anymore because it's too expensive. My last resort is now cheaper food because that's all I can afford. So now we're expanding this cycle of people eating bad food, which is going to expand the, the health issues. And, yeah. we're, and, we're, and we're trickling that down to the children yeah. who have that's to true. grow up in this environment eating bad food because that's they have true. no other choice. So we're only perpetuating this cycle of bad health. And that's the exact position of why we're in this COVID scenario, because you have people with obesity, people that have bad health, inflammatory problems. So all we've done is just transferred the social cost from one special interest group, which would be the people we saved from COVID, onto other people like minorities, the poor people, the domestic abuse, the crime is up, depression is up, yeah. so, uh, social anxiety is up, uh, political chaos is up. You know, so it's like depression. Also, immune systems are wrecked uh, mm -hmm. because they kept us. They kept us. You know, stay home, stay safe. Uh, well, stay home, stay safe, get sick, you know, and, and, uh, and so we don't have exposure anymore to, to germs and, and we were kept from them for you. By the way, I had an inter, have you, I don't know if you've had an interaction with the medical uh, uh, industry at all in the last two years, but, um, and I, I typically eschew these kind of experiences, but I just so happened to uh, uh, need a COVID test because I had the routine medical procedures or nothing, but but I had like three interactions. These people are insane. I mean, they don't know if they're trying to. 
I don't understand what they're doing. It's like they, they, they're terrified of COVID. Like, okay, so the purpose of a medical industry is to cure you when you're sick or to mitigate your disease or to somehow give you therapeutics or make you, if you're sick, you're better, you make you better. I think these people are, are, are their one goal is to make sure they don't treat anybody with COVID or if they don't treat anybody unless you have COVID. So I can't figure out what it is they're doing, but they do this crazy kabuki dance. You know, you go in and it's like, oh, here's your hand sanitizer and, um, and here's some disinfectant to spray in your chair and don't sit next to this other person. And here's my face shield and a plexiglass screen. And, and you're looking at all this and go, okay, you really, you should, and, and also put, put on your mask above your nose and so Always above the nose. Yeah, and <laughs> you do realize that, that everything you're, you're doing and everything you're telling me is, is, is a lie. It's all fake. Like you're, you're not outsmarting this virus. I hope you know that. Oh, temperature checks. I'm just like, what are you doing? You people are crazy and spraying everything in sight. All right, this was, we've known since something like March or April of, you know, of 2020, that all this stuff is nonsense. And yet, so the medical industry itself is the top practitioners of these superstitions. And yet they want us to entrust our bodies to them. Mm -hmm. Is there any, you know, I mean, like I'm highly skeptical of these people. They're supposed to be the specialists and, and they're engaging in these, 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 this, this fake liturgy, you know? Uh, this ritualistic cleansing, uh, as if it's you know uh, 1430, and and there's a rumor out that there's vampires or something. I, I don't I don't know what's going on. It's it's a crazy world. It's How do you, uh, uh, I, I, think, I think I think I think it's also just about control, right? At the end of the day, there's a lot of population control that they're trying to instill onto people, and yeah. then you've got the bigs getting bigger. So pharma. Big pharma just keeps acquiring all these other companies and they really want to just control everything. And it's created this debate between society. Are you, you know, are you God versus nature or man versus science? And that term science now has embodied this, you know, I think, I, 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 I don't know how to say this, but it's turned into a cult almost. Yeah. Let's say somebody brings you some piece of medical information based on what, and if you disagree with it or you challenge it, they just start yelling science, trust the science, trust the science. They just throw that in your face. So it's almost like, you know, this creation of a second class citizen, just because you're not following quote the science, right? Oh, they, they did this a century ago with, with eugenics. You know, they just said, look, there's certain people with whom you should not breed. And if you don't want to breed with them, you don't want to be around them. And if you don't want to be around them, we have to exclude them. So that was the basis of segregation. And they were shouting the science, the science, the science back then too. So we, we've, we've been Cycles. here before. Yeah, you we've know, been I, here before. I find it I find it interesting when I listen to a lot of medical the medical industry specifically talking about how they're so fixated on public safety. And this is where I'm coming back to what you're talking about in terms of it's how do you define public safety? And I think that a lot of them they tend to exclude economic reality, which is the very foundation to human life. Without food, you can't sustain yourself, which is a resource. So that's a premise of economics. Uh, the flow of resources without a job, you can't eat, you can't take care of your family, you can't save, you can't buy a house, you can't buy clothes. And I would see a lot of doctors say, well, we need to care more about human life than about the economy. But then in my head, I'm going, but at the same time, you're putting people into poverty. You're increasing the depression, the anxiety, mm -hmm. like the mm -hmm. long-term consequences appear to have far greater impact negatively on society than if we had just allowed COVID to go rampant mm -hmm. because now everyone is impacted. 
mm-hmm. on every level. So all you've done is transferred the social economic consequences from one group to the other. It, economics is human life. It's just the very essence of our reality. So why, why when we're saying public safety, why should we exclude economics? It's like, it's as if they live in a bubble and to their perspective, economics is just some fallacy or some tool that can mm-hmm. be manipulated by the state. Right, right, right. They think of economics, I think uh, there's a lot of people out there that heretofore have thought of economics as being something associated with stock prices and uh, rich people on Wall Street. And, and that's, that's what economics is. So they said, look, shut, you know, turn off the economy. You, you, you want to turn off the economy? I mean, that's like, that's like saying you want to you shut down society, which they kind of wanted to, actually. Uh, but, but you can't actually do that. And then they tried to make up for it by... Uh, falsifying all the numbers using uh, vast amounts of uh, monetary expansion and and government spending and uh, debt accumulation, so the numbers would look pretty. Um, I, th- this is the the most preposterous uh, bunch of fallacies imaginable. I mean, everything that they've done for the last twenty minutes has revealed, I would say, the ruling class in most uh, countries as uh, deeply, deeply ignorant of almost everything. Uh, and duplicitous, um, lying, and and it's no wonder they've lost the public trust. I mean, there, there's who can possibly believe these people? They sit and lie. They lie to you every single day. You know, you turn on the the television. There's Fauci lying to you, Walensky lying to you. Everybody's lying to you all the time, and and we know this. And like these vaccine passports. I mean, one of the things that Brownstone's done. We've done a lot of very good things, but we put the I put together. Not me. This guy named Paul uh, Elias Alexander is a, a professor of epidemiology. Uh, put together a, a links and summaries of 91 articles about natural immunity to COVID 19. 91 uh, academic scientific studies about natural immunity. And, and had a link to each one of them and a summary of each one, which is that natural immunity is more robust, broad, and effective, and safer than all, than all the vaccines. Okay. So, so I put this out there, 91. I mean, so you, you, what is the science? Okay, here's the science. <laughs> but meanwhile, we've got these vaccine passports that are acting as if there's no such thing as natural immunity or some sort of witchcraft, you know? And even the Wall Street Journal yesterday ran an article saying, well, some people don't want to get the, uh, the vaccine because they're trusting natural immunity, but, but um, science says that 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 if you trust natural immunity, you're going to get an even worse case of COVID. It won't, your natural immunities will not last and you will have long-term uh, ill health as a result. So get the vax. Okay, so I'm reading this and I look up this journalist. She's 24 years old. She comes out of some woke university. You know, She's never covered science before in her life. Uh, just some sort of careerist who happened to land at the Wall Street Journal. And she's writing gibberish. This is how it happens. But, you know, you read this article in the Wall Street Journal, you think, well, this is surely, you know, uh, credible. Reputable source. Credible. Yeah. But, yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, I, I don't understand what else do I need to do. I, I've got a link up with 91 studies showing that everything she said was completely false and the truth is entirely the opposite. And yet there it is in the Wall Street Journal. Um, they play, they, it's like as if they play a game of broken telephone 
where we always have to hear from different sources. Whereas the opposite side says, well, you know what? I'm just going to go read direct sources. I'm going to go read about evolution. I'm going to go read about natural immunity. I'm going to go right. read about vaccines, about the data that shows that, well, kids are have little to no risk relative to old people. Of course. You know, it's, you know and by, that's the thing. They've never once presented the data to people to say, here's you the know. data. Assess the risk and establish where you fall within yeah. these categories. Yeah, uh, you're right about that. And this has been uh, the great secret of the entire last 20 months is that uh, the, the gradients of risk uh, by demographics and particularly age and, and health have been withheld for the population. They wanted to treat everybody as identically at risk of, of COVID. And this is, here we are 20 months later and they're doing the same thing and it's a lie. It's always been a lie. So let me ask you gentlemen a question because like people ask me this question all the time. You know, why did this happen to us? Um, and I never really have an answer. And what I've usually said is that I think this is an intellectual failing, that, that people somehow uh, lost a connection with, with real science. They didn't understand immunology and they didn't understand economics and they didn't understand liberalism generally. Okay? And I think that's probably true. But there's this other guy who wrote this article, and I'm about to publish this on Brownstone because it was just so powerful. His name is Julius Ruchel, uh, and he's from Ottawa. And uh, he says this is all about um, the big pharma uh, adopting a subscription model. I, I would, it's actually a very interesting point. Like I'm in the capital market space and so we, we deal, you know, I've seen how pharma operates, right? Um, yeah. There's no question that profits over health is a real thing. I mean, we don't have to debate that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to, we don't have to argue that, mm -hmm. but what, and I got to be careful what I say here because you're people will say, Oh, this guy's a conspiracy theorist because he doesn't understand that you need to have, you know, specific sources that are listed. I mean, you just talked about guys had a natural immunity article with 91 sources. And even that wasn't enough. The Israel study came out validating that too. You know? yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it challenges that narrative, but um, I, I think there's a much deeper uh, war happening. And I think it's a spiritual war right now between mm -hmm. people who want to basically not be manipulated by the media versus people who are manipulated by the media. And I think, like you said, uh, Jeffrey, is just it, it's that connection between the selves. Like I, I find maybe a vast majority of the population just, you know, got rid of it and they'll they'll listen to what the guy higher up is telling them, which is the government, you yeah. know. So to your point, uh, did pharma adopt a subscription-based model? I think every business now is doing that. And yeah. this was almost pharma's way of doing it. Yeah. They did it in such a way that scared 80% of the population yeah. who is now going to be dependent on that whole remedy. Yeah. BS, excuse my French. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> if that so, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like Amazon adopted you know, Netflix and so on. So this is the path to profitability. Correct. Uh, 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 so the subscription model, it's like you just don't want to rely on people stumbling into your bakery randomly. Right? It's frustrating. You get up at 4 a.m., bake a bunch of bread. Sometimes people show up, sometimes they don't. It's a frustrating model. But if you, if you can guarantee that everybody's going to buy 12 donuts every morning at 9 a.m. and you can deliver them to them, then you've got a, be you've got a better business model. So this is, this is pharma adopting this. But like, on what basis? And I think this is where you have to really, we have to talk about Bill Gates. Um, he's always been deeply confused about viruses, right? So, so he invented the Windows operating system and it sucked. 
and it got attacked and spam arrived and viruses were delivering, you know, coming through email and so on and so on. So a, a lot of his career was spent coming up with antivirus software and ways to stop viruses from getting into hard drives. That was really it. And so he just began, I think he began to obsess about this. And so at some point he began to think of the human beings as computers, um, uh, uh, immune systems as, as hard drives. And, um, and uh, uh, so, uh, ph pharmaceutical companies as firmware and the injections as, as the, uh, the software upgrade. Yep, I was, so talking about the, the whole, what's going on, I was, in my mind, I was thinking that, I think there's a combination of a hero complex with ignorance. So the desire to save people with the lack of understanding of collectivist mechanics versus individual mechanics, and how the economy relates to human society, that combination create, like, I mean, if you look at it, like studying economics, you look at history and you start seeing that a crisis always seems to get these people that are very ignorant to want to be the hero and solve problems. But the way they go about solving the problems always tends to create all sorts of unintended consequences. So right. that's where the ignorance comes in. But the desire to act is that ego, the, the desire to be the hero. So these politicians want to solve people's problems. It, it solidifies a political narrative that you get to look good. You get to solidify voters and you do it at any cost. But then the ignorance comes in where you forget that all these consequences you've expanded are a direct result of that very ignorance and your desire to save people. And then they'll become the hero again on all the other issues that they've created by spending more money to solve the other problems. Right. Yeah, that's we're, right. So they they create the problems perpetual to, cycle. To, to get people addicted to their fake solutions. The vaccines haven't worked. Actually, that's the one thing that uh, where all this goes wrong, you know, um, uh, it was a perfect, like if you believe it was a plan, and I'm not sure it was, but let's say it, it was a plan from the beginning. Um, it was all contingent upon this idea of the vaccines working, uh, but, uh, but they don't. I mean, I'm sorry to just put it that way. It, but the science didn't change. It yeah, did, they, by, their by science any, changed. Yeah, by any standard of the vaccines are not working in the way that they promise they would. And so that's a real problem. So if you if you download a piece of software that uh, does not actually perform the way you want it, you just delete it from your computer, all right? Uh, so that's why they have to have mandates because these things are, 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 are don't stop a transmission. They don't stop infection, which means they don't make a contribution to the achievement of endemicity and herd immunity. So that's a problem. I mean, maybe they cut off a protein spike and, and prolong uh, the lives of the vulnerable by you know, some, some period of time. I mean, we're still waiting for that data. Maybe that's not true either. I don't know. But that's the best you can say about them. But they don't stop transmission. They don't stop infection. They just don't. So, so their product sucks. You know? So people don't want it. So now it has to be mandated. Get your, mm -hmm. you know. So it's, well, I, it's, yeah. it's grotesque. I always say weak, weak action, weak behaviors or weak people. Oh, it's like, if you look at a family household, if you have like, let's say an abusive father, he always needs to control everything. So the moment you step yeah. out of bounds, he'll enforce, do as That's I say, do as I say. So like, if you look at a family household as a unit and you look as a collective economy, as a unit with the, the paternalism as the government as a, the father figure, and we're the little children. If we step out of bounds, we get punished. We That's can't. Right. We can't experience for ourselves. We can't establish risk for ourselves. We can't That's explore right. for ourselves. Our, our ability to critically think has been zapped and redirected to the central state or the ego of every market. And they make all the decisions for us. That's and right. Then, we're, not, we're not human beings. We're not acting volitional uh, uh, 
rational human beings. We're just, we're just lab rats uh, in their models. That's exactly. truly the way they've treated us and continue to treat us. And, and, but the thing is that they're wrong. So <laughs> and this is a problem, right? <laughs> so for them, because actually humans, human beings are very clever. Mm-hmm. And you can you can put us in cages for a while, but you know we languish in there long enough. We're going to figure out how to get out. I always said I've been saying since the beginning that if we didn't have our telephones, we didn't have social media and YouTube to distract yeah. us during these lockdowns, I think we would have tried to end this much quicker because we would have been distracted. Well, yeah. I think the other yeah. thing with that is it's just it was comforting. Mm-hmm. This but is like it. this was this was a wartime thing. But you you know, 1932, there was no Netflix, there was no Apple. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people were just sitting at home watching Netflix, wasting their time. So I, I think that's kind of where the, the longevity of the lockdowns. And I want to segue into the, the topic that we're here to talk about, which is really freedom. But mm. freedom, and Jeffrey, you're, you're obviously, I know there's a lot to say here, but freedom does get misinterpreted a lot by the masses, unfortunately. Mm. And you'd mentioned earlier, they want to You're bring selfish. everybody to the, to the same level. And that by definition, unfortunately the equal suffering of, of, of losses or the mm. equal suffering of everybody is literally mm. communism, right? It's, mm. it's, the, it's mm. the core definition. So what's your take on freedom? Like, what does that mean to you? And what, what can we do about it to get it back, basically? Yeah, so the, the, the point about freedom is uh, that, that, you know, we, in, we invented the modern idea of freedom sometime in the late Middle Ages, and, and it grows out of the uh, religious wars. Uh, and so here's the problem. So the Catholic Church had this like monopoly on religion in Western Europe, you know, for a long time. And then, and then uh, that monopoly was shattered. So then the question became, you know, what is our meaning as a society if people can practice two different uh, uh, religions in the same territory? I mean, wouldn't that lead to chaos? And they're like, yeah, that's right. So let's exterminate uh, the people who are practicing the wrong religion. But the problem is that the king kept changing his mind. And I mean, this is true in Spain, this is true in, in, you know, in England, or true all over the place in France. And um, so everybody just had to comply with the new religion, whatever it happened to be. And so then war was just perpetual, but exhausting. And, and after about 100 years of religious wars, there was this kind of discovery, like, well, how about we, we try a new system in, under which Anyone can believe whatever he wants, um, as long as you don't impinge on the rights of others to believe what they want. Let's, let's try that out and see how it works. So that was the beginning of the modern idea of religious uh, freedom. And, and it was a default position, something that states adopted reluctantly, only because they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't manage to homogeneize uh, to make make all their communities religiously homogeneous without constant violence and, and very costly war. So freedom was like, like we give up, you know, kind of thing. And then it worked. So then it became fashionable. It's like, well, let's try freedom in like speech and, um, and let people move wherever they want, um, uh, own whatever they want, accumulate whatever they want. As long as people are being peaceful, let's, let's let people do with them, which is the whole basis of liberalism. And so, the, so there became a kind of a new school of thought out there, which is that the less you attempt to control from the top, whether it's the church or the state, uh, the better the social outcomes, you know? And so that was the liberalism that, that built the West. And, and, you know, we like to think that it culminated in the American Revolution. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. I don't really know. But nonetheless, over, over the course of three or 400 years, this idea of human rights and freedom just gradually evolved. So every, 
person is not defined by their station in life, but rather by their inherent dignity as a human being because uh, they're volitional creatures. Uh, um, uh, and they, they, people make mistakes, but um, those mistakes are correctable within an atmosphere of freedom. Uh, but if there's a central plan and there's a mistake, then the mistake uh, metastasizes and sticks. So we, we adopted this idea of freedom to, to enable experimentation. You know, we trusted social processes and market functioning to give us better social outcomes. And then that gradually evolved uh, to, to, uh, to include a kind of a demand for, for universal human rights, which you know, slavery was a compromise of that. We got rid of it. Um, the subjugation of women was a was a, a violation of human rights, and we got rid of that. Um, you know, uh, feuds and and uh, 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 monarchies, they all kind of interrupted this idea of human rights. So we invented this idea of democracy to also kind of mirror the human rights we began to develop in civics and market society, and and so on and so on. It went, and and we thought we had a kind of a social consensus for these for these views. And by the way, all of this happened in the presence of infectious disease, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, there were yeah. diseases, you know, they've always been here, but we always knew, uh, we've known for at least, actually we've known since the Middle Ages, actually, that you're way better off just letting people mitigate disease on their own with doctor-patient relationships. And if you're sick, stay home, kind of, kind of uh, normal. Uh, policies and we and we discovered the scalability of the immune system too you know um uh we discovered that well we've known that for a couple of thousand years but we began to bring the good science to it you know only in the last 100 years with the discovery of herd immunity in the 1920s and 30s and so on uh and then the uh, um, then the great achievement of the eradication of smallpox you know which made vaccines very somehow fashionable. So even in the presence of infectious disease, we, we still had human rights and freedoms. Um, something happened by 2020 uh, in which, I don't know, I, I think there's illiberalism like spreading in the academy and people just stopped believing in, in freedom as, as an idea. Um, and certainly the ruling class did uh, stop believing in freedom. Would you, would you, would you say though, and sorry to cut you off, no. I just quick question, not just with regards to that. I would say that, you know, obviously history operates in cycles. There's no question yeah. about that. And I feel like we're kind of on that downward spiral right now sure. before the next leg up happens. Right. Yeah. I, would you say the killing of JFK actually started the destabilization of society in the West? And it's actually propelled us to have a vast majority of people just basically concede to whatever the government or the big institutions are basically telling them to do. Yeah, but that's a big, I, I don't know. So it's very interesting. I'm not entirely sure about that because maybe that's something, but um, there was also the, the strange you know, attempt after World War II to kind of uh, centrally plan communities and families and societies, you know, like we know how they're supposed to look. We know what women are supposed to do. helps that, correct? What's that? The Keynesian economics, the framework. Of oh yeah, 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 yeah. Helps that's that right. perspective. So there the was already a, a planning mentality yeah. alive. Mm. You know, we can plan the macroeconomy, we can plan the family, we can plan our communities. We're going to have zoning controls, and yeah, there was a kind of a fashion for planning that emerged. I would say sometime mm. after World War II, and then you had this whole generation that just kind of got frustrated with the with the plan. They wanted to do other things, 
And uh, that led to a kind of revolt. And yeah, the Kennedy assassination, you know, kind of kicked off this, this general sense of rebellion. But then there was the, uh, uh, I mean, the, the last impressive thing that the state did was go to the moon. You know, there's, there's just been nothing that's happened uh, ever since that's, that's impressive <laughs> at all. <laughs> you had the draft riots, you know, of the, the late 1960s, early 1970s, which basically discredited the, the, the elites and then the uh, impeachment of Nixon, you know, uh, you know, led us to believe that really even the guys at the top are not, uh, um, are not uh, beyond corruption. Um, and, and I think the ruling class has been sort of hanging on ever since that time. And I, I do find it interesting because I wrote an article 15 years ago because George W. Bush was just, just this creepy guy, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. And but he started the he started the uh, Iraq War, you know. And yep. so because he, he was just kind of a drunken uh, loser, and I sort of hoped he would govern like one, you know, just kind of sleeping late and partying it up or whatever. But then 9/11 happened. And he's like, oh, I have to get serious. So then it became really apocalyptic. So he imposed this security theater all around us, you know. Um, but then uh, uh, but then he began, began to get paranoid. So he, he read a book about the 1918 flu and um, he began to worry about uh, uh, bioweapons, you know, and uh, viruses coming from abroad that were going to slaughter everybody. So he ordered everybody to come up with a plan for how to deal with infectious diseases. And it was about that time that these weird epidemiological models started coming along and Bill Gates was getting interested in viruses and all this stuff. So um, Bush uh, rejected the old traditional wisdom of, you know, you know doctor-patient relationships, let the virus spread, let the human immune system uh, upgrade itself according to um, the particulars of time and place, you know. He thought that was a boring solution. So he, he came up with this, this, he embraced this cranky view that you should have lockdowns. So, so and, and then a few months later, there was this thing called the avian bird flu and he freaked out. I mean, you can go back and you can go look on YouTube and look up you know, his press conferences about the bird flu. Ah, oh, it's gonna be a disaster. You know, millions are gonna die. Uh, uh, one in five of your friends are gonna be dead in no time. Uh, we're gonna have to close all the businesses and, and shut everything down. and. Uh, and he was giving these, these press conferences, like freaking out about the avian bird flu. Well, nobody paid any attention to this. They're like, oh, well, that's sort of boring and stupid. Well, he ordered the CDC to put in contingency plans for lockdowns at that, at that time. And I wrote about it in 2006. I said, this is, this is insanity. This guy's nuts. And my theory at the time was that the state as an institution had sort of lost its raison d'etre. Mm -hmm. and, and, and had decided that, that one thing it could do to sustain itself and to convince the populace, the public of its, of its essential services, because the war on terror had failed, everything had failed, everything was flopping, welfare state was ridiculous, um, macroeconomic central planning was, was, was falling apart, the government couldn't do anything well, social security sucks and so on. So infection, you know, controlling infectious disease was kind of like this, this new thing the government could do. And he really wanted it to happen, uh, but it didn't happen because, um, because the avian bird flu only infected uh, birds. <laughs> so they became, like, I think there's like two or three people in the world who ever caught the avian bird flu. So that was a kind of a problem for him. Uh, but meanwhile, you had the central plan in place and CDC's all, and, and now suddenly the computer modelers 
people like Neil Ferguson and you know all these people were suddenly fashionable because the president had endorsed their plans. Fauci as well. I mean, Fauci, Fauci. was there. Fauci yeah. was there when AIDS That's right. became an epidemic. That's right. Um, and I, I just find it so insane that this guy is still the still head hanging around. Of, he's yeah. still there. Right. Like, and he's like you said earlier, he is lying because you know they found out that they were funding a lab in Wuhan. There's yeah. evidence now right. with right. gain of function research. That's right. And, and the problem is you got that 80% of the population that thinks that, oh, that's a conspiracy theorist because it came from, you know, oh, right. Real. It was, I think it was Rand Paul. He, he called it mm -hmm. out in, in, in a Senate hearing and he obliterated Fauci. And it's just like, you know, so it's interesting. Like, it's almost like they secretly had a plan in place for 2020 and that they were just rating for the right. They kind of, they kind of did. And they, they might've implemented it in 2009 with H1N1, which is actually a very scary flu it's the same flu as 1918 so the problem was that nobody could the the public health officials and the modelers and the lockdowners couldn't get anybody's attention because we're in the middle of a financial crisis ah big, so, the big lie the big distraction right yeah and so they're like hey let's uh, lock down for h1n1 you know this is very bad and people are like oh fuck. No, they didn't care <laughs> it just didn't work <laughs> So, but I guess we, but so 2020 comes around and the ruling class really needed a plan to get rid of Trump. So, um, <laughs> but now the Fauci thing is very interesting. You're, you're raising it with this because, you know, he's, he's not a, he's not a, a terrible scientist. I mean, he's, he's a, he's kind of a, a evil person, but he's actually not completely stupid. So uh, during January and February, or the first three weeks of February, he was mostly saying good stuff about, about uh, SARS-CoV-2. He was like, let's not lock down, let's not have travel restrictions. This is this has got a- You don't need a mask either. You don't need a mask. The infection fatality rate is roughly the same as, uh, as a, a bad flu season. We're gonna have to wait and see. And, and he was saying reasonable things, even writing in the New England Journal of Medicine in, on February 26th, that this is, um, very low infection fatality rate. Everybody should just calm down. Now that article came out February 26th. I was looking through his emails and he was still refereeing that article about the 20th. Uh, but it was that very week when he began to change his tune. And suddenly he became like a lockdowner. And the first email I can find from him twinned with the idea of lockdowns is an email to, um, oh God, she's... She, she's it's a sort of va va voom blonde uh, actress who, who who played a dotty in Pee Wee's Big, Big Adventure. I forget now what her name is, but she wrote him and said, "I have a large Twitter following." And uh, Morgan Freeman, no, not, not Morgan Freeman, obviously not. It's something like that. But um, and she wrote him. She said, "Well, I have this large Twitter following. What do you want me to say to my Twitter followers?" He goes, "Tell everybody that they're going to have to close their schools and churches," because it's the first indication. I've seen where he actually shifted from being a, like a scientist to being a crazy lockdowner. So the question is like, why did he shift? And I think you put your finger on it with the Wuhan lab thing. And, and let's, let's say for a moment, we don't know whether and to what extent this was lab created virus. Let's say we don't know that. It doesn't really matter. Fauci believed at the time that he could get in trouble. Uh, that he had funded the Wuhan lab and the, and the lab had generated the virus, then he was going to be personally blamed for it. So I think he's shifted sides on this thing solely to create a kind of a chaos 
to distract from his per, from his personal belief in his personal culpability. I think it was job protection for him. It's Which it's incredible. It, yeah, it's incredible just how at the end of the day, it's bribes and money and corruption. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. like it, like uh, there are people pulling strings right now who can control these people. And I mean, we're seeing it in Canada now too, on on a political level. Like I I know people I went to school with and the only reason they want to go into politics is to use the system to enrich themselves. Mm -hmm. And and I I find with the way the last 18 months has transpired for a certain group of people who identify on a specific spectrum, they're okay with that. You know what I mean? It it doesn't actually, it's all about power, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. And the more power you give to the institution, the less freedom everybody has. Mm-hmm. And the moment, the moment you get, I mean, we have it with Justin Trudeau. He's like, you want your freedom back? Get the two jabs. And it's just like, yeah. excuse also, me. You don't deserve your freedom. Yeah. It's like, who are you going to tell us to decide? Like, who are you to decide what we can and can't do? Yeah. This but entire- see, here's the, the problem is that people don't believe in morality anymore. Um, uh, Hannah Arendt writes this in this book, uh, um, Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, she writes that when the state so t- radically transgresses everybody's common sense of, of decency, uh, it's, it's like codifying nihilism. Um, and then it immediately becomes part of the culture. So, so even the lies are not disreputable anymore. They're lying. We know they're lying. They know that we know they're lying. And then everybody lies anyway. And we can graduate, instead of condemning Fauci for being a liar, uh, many people look at him as, as a very clever survivor, you know? Uh, so this is, this is sort of the unleashing of nihilism in the culture. This is what Her- Hannah Arendt says is the essential condition that leads to totalitarianism, uh, that people stop believing in truth, stop believing in facts, and stop believing in morality. And once those three things uh, are gone, then anything becomes possible. And I think that's where we are. I always, I compare it, I compare the social, like, so I like to compare social entities, whether it's an individual, a business, a government, whatever. I look at ego. So I compare, I look at the ego. I say, if you can look at the government or any social entity and you can say there appears to be an ego and there appears to be a central power that's expanding and expanding in correlation with its ego, where it wants to control more and wants to say more, wants to do more and centralize everything. And then you can say, well, everybody else in that environment will suffer as a consequence because that ego, as that ego thrives, everything else suffers. So the bigger the government, the bigger the ego, and therefore everyone around it suffers as a consequence because we are no longer susceptible to our own decisions. We are not susceptible to an ego that decides everything for us as if though they are gods. Yeah, and 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 I think I think our our perceptions of, of the world radically changed. I mean, we didn't believe that these things were possible. I didn't believe it. Like I wrote an article in January of 2020 saying they can do this to us, and I, I got on a lot of podcasts, and people were saying you don't, you know, you don't actually think that mass quarantines could happen. They you thought know. you were crazy, probably, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And I said, and I would say, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that the power is there. And that alone is bad enough. Well, I didn't have any idea that two months later they would actually attempt it, and and they did. And um, you know, March eighth, 
they shut down South by Southwest conference in Austin. The mayor just said, you can't have it. Well, 250,000 people had to shred their airplane tickets and uh, hotel reservations when the conference went bankrupt. And I was screaming about it at the time. I wrote an article about this, why this draconian response to the coronavirus. And I had like the only article in the English language about this. And I was like, where is everybody else? They were shut down by disease fear. You know, where, where are my compatriots? Where, where are people joining me? Where's, I'm sorry, but you know, where was the Cato Institute? You know, they, they were silent, you know, for, for a long time um, about this topic. Uh, uh, Shell-shocked out of fear, you know? And, um, and the ruling class gathered together and they said, let's stay safe from the virus. Okay, we've been there before. That's what the uh, uh, plantation owners said to the slaves. Slaves, they, you know, they would stay. The gentle folk would stay in the in, in the hills, you know, in the in, in, in the quarters, and let let all the slaves be the sandbags for the disease. This is where India got its its uh, uh, caste system from. Uh, some people are, are dirty and deserve all to bear the burden of herd immunity, and the clean people have to stay away from the disease. That's what we did, and and so. Uh, because our entire public culture is ruled by these, these uh, the Zoom class or the ruling class or the elites, they, they care nothing for the working class, the minorities or the social outcomes of this stuff. They're just like, just keep this germ away from me. Keep the bug away from me because I'm clean. Mm. You get it, you know? The New York Times for, for, for the better part of a year and a half, you know, ran, you know, a, th a thing that, that look up your zip code and find out what you should do about the coronavirus. Okay, so you look up your zip code and they're like, ah, you're in a high transmission area. What you should do is stay home and order your groceries online. Talk, talk, talk about a vested interest in trying to tell people how to live their life. Oh, yeah. I, I think personally, and I, I don't know if you guys agree with this, I think the New York Times is, is a tabloid of, of, of lies. They've been a tabloid yeah. of lies since, since World War II. They thought, I, they, they wrote articles about Hitler being a hero and, and, yeah. and, and, and a role model to, to sort of freedom and democracy. And it just turned out to be the biggest lie. And they continue to do that to this day. So when you yeah. have like a 24-year-old, I, I don't like to call them journalists anymore there, there's there's a term and i'm going to say it anyways they, they're called prostitutes what they do is they just they write these things to get yeah. clicks because we're in a digital age now so anything that catches people's attention with a catchy headline and they'll just eat it up no questions asked but yeah. because it's the new york times reputable source that's great we're going to think what they're they doing said. moral good and they really do believe they're doing moral good but look they who they're talking to they're only talking to the ruling class. I mean, so that instruction, stay home and get your groceries delivered. It's very interesting. I, I reflected on that. It's like, okay, so who's reading the New York Times? The people who can do work at home and exactly. order their groceries. Exactly. I mean, in other words, the instruction wasn't deliver groceries to those who need it. <laughs> they didn't say that. They're telling you to let the working class do this for you, the great New York Times reader. So I mean, the the and the 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 complete blindness of their of their uh, class myopia is is absolutely shocking. There was a um there was these case studies that I was that I had read about a couple of weeks ago talking about well this is primarily with Africa where they're talking about should we contemplate saving ourselves from COVID or should we contemplate dying from starvation because we're not working and make money. 
you know? So it shows the very basis of the fact that you ignore the poverty and the poor people where they need to work. They can't afford to not work and worry about COVID. They don't have that luxury. So in my mind, this whole time, I'm like, if there was ever a time where someone could truly argue, this is the definition of systemic privilege, it seemed very much as if this was the privilege within a system acting in a certain way. You know, then you have like, for example, in New York, where they're showing that roughly 75% of the black community is not vaccinated. So you've entirely segregated 75% of your black community. And then you're going to say, we care about black people and we, and we're fighting racism, but yet you're amplifying the very issues you say you're are fighting against. Yeah. And it's worse. So yeah, we threw the working class and minorities, uh, out uh, into the into the world, say, oh, it's because you're essential. You're essential, and get the virus. Okay, so they did, and then they got immunities. God bless them, right? I mean, all the demographic data we have from the 1840s and 1850s, uh, uh, before the end of slavery in the United States, said that uh, uh, the slave population was far had far better immune systems than than the, the, their lords and masters, and the reason is that they were used as sandbags for disease but their immune systems adapted to it, right? So that's the working class in America. They got COVID, um, they developed robust immunities. And then, you know, we, we told them that that's not good enough. You have to get our injection from big pharma. So it's even worse than just the fact that we use them as, as uh, threw them under the bus, we use them as our sandbags or just dis- disregarded their interests and refused to share demograph- uh, democratically the risk of uh, infection with them because we segregated ourselves. And then we, then we deny them the one benefit that they gained from the risk exposure and tell them that they have to, uh, they have to get the uh, first shot. Nope, two shots. Nope, three shots. Or you don't have a livelihood anymore. You don't I have mean, a livelihood, it, it, and you can't, you can't go to the movies, you can't go to Broadway, you can't come to my restaurant, you can't travel. So, so what I've realized, and, and this is happening in our health system in Quebec right now, um, they wanted to basically get rid of, they said if to all the nurses in the hospital system, if you're not double vaccinated by October 15th, oh, you yeah. will not have a job. And oh, what yeah. they realized was, holy shit, that. if we yeah. do that, the entire health system is going to collapse because there's been a massive pushback against this mandate so they actually extended it to november 15th yeah yeah. whatever whatever that's worth Mm. so you know yeah i I just my 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 question it's it's the cliche of like hey in world war ii freedom must be fought for right very simple question like and we're seeing it with southwest airlines too there was pushback there ge employees walking out how do we continue to fight against this without getting too violent before it gets really bad yeah, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this topic. The Southwest airline uh, sick out actually worked, you know, right? So Southwest is back down. And so that's very exciting. Um, I think people underestimate the power of moral court courage, moral courage. So anybody can go along and that's fine. I mean, not everybody's required to be a hero, but if you're willing to make a small sacrifice, take a little risk on behalf of principle, it's very possible that um, the ruling class will back down. And that we see this happening, um, actually, in many places. Now, it may not work the first time, may not work the second time, or even the 30th time, but eventually, if you resist enough, uh, they will back down. 
They ca they cannot manage a system under which there's mass revolt. They just can't. They cannot. Uh, so I think that's what's happening. I, we've got a lot of deep seething in this country, uh, at least in the United States. I can tell you that like half the population doesn't believe a word from any official source, whether it's the media or government or uh, big corporations or big tech. You know, uh, vast cynicism is spreading. I don't necessarily think this lays a, a good foundation for freedom in the culture because I don't I don't think nihilism is a good basis for for freedom. On the other hand, it is. Um, helping to disable uh, the, uh, the ruling class plans. So I, I think this resistance is, is actually working. I th and I, th I think it's the only way, but let's not you know, romanticize this. I mean, people's lives are being ruined, ruined. Um, I have scientists, friends of mine who just wanted to be scientists uh, their whole lives and they've obtained great acclaim, huge publications, big uh, appointments, tenure, uh, acclaim, celebration, who will not get this vaccine, will not, because they know they have natural immunities and it's a compromise of their scientific integrity to acquiesce to these preposterous unscientific mandates. And they're not gonna do it. And now they're being fired. So their whole lives are being uh, uh, unraveled and destroyed. And they're being vastly demoralized by what's happening. And it's not just I mean, I care about the professors because that's the world in which I live, but it's firemen, it's policemen, it's, it's, it's teachers, it's, it's nurses, it's, it's doctors, it's uh, workers at big tech. It's, it's a lot of people whose lives are being shattered right now by these mandates. I think we're eventually going to defeat them. I really do. I'm starting to think, of, it's like it could go either way at this point, but it's like it's teetering on the edge. But there is vast resistance developing right now. And, and I think one of you said that you had a friend who's running for political office and all he cares about is ending the lockdowns and the mandates. I think this is true for, for millions and millions and millions of people right now. They're totally dedicated to upending whatever it is about the political system that enabled this to happen to us and to make sure this never happens again. And I think that's say. great. So, and this, this really does speak to a point that F.A. Hayek makes in his 1947 mm. article uh, about uh, uh, um, the intellectuals and socialism. He says right at the end, he says, there's, there's no people who appreciates freedom more uh, than the generation that lost it and then regained it. Cycles. Yeah. Right? And, and he says, I hope that we don't have to lose our freedom completely before we begin to revalue it again and, and make again uh, the project of, of freedom and intellectual adventure you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and a cultural, a cultural norm. Yes, um, yes. But that in fact is what happened to us, right? We lost our freedoms and I'm, you know, we did. Uh, and I hope it doesn't get worse. It, it kept getting worse, but, but maybe it's as bad as it's going to get, I don't know. But we're rediscovering that foundation of what it means to be free. And I don't mean this in an ideological sense, like a lot of the writers for Brownstone are from the left. A lot are from the right. Uh, a lot are just centrists. A lot are just scientists who never thought about politics in their lives. And I don't really care at this point. I don't really care where your ideological orientation is. If you have an in intuitive understanding of the importance of human rights and freedom as a norm and social and market functioning as the best basis on which society can evolve and progress, then I want to run your article. 
you know, then you're with me and, and you're with us, you know, right? So I think we need to like throw away all these old ideological categories and start really caring about the thing that really matters, which is, you know, are we going to be treated as human beings by our uh, civic institutions or lab rats? That's really the choice we face. You know, there's a, there's a quote going back to Ayn Rand that says, which talks about the smallest minority is the individual. There is no smaller yeah. minority than the individual. So when you look at, I mean, the West or most economies or societies nowadays, most, most laws or mandates are designed to suit a collective narrative or collective behavior. Yeah. And that's coming at the cost of serving the individual. The individual is no longer being served. So if you don't serve the individual, then you are by default eliminating freedom of choice and optionality right. for individuals because an individual cannot thrive if you have to appeal to a collective narrative. And health is about individuals. Now there's certain, I like the term public health, by the way. I think it's, it's real, like in the sense that like, like you would rather uh, have a drinking water that's not got cholera in it, okay? So, so, so that's an aspect of, of public health. Or, or lead. I could, or what? Lead. Lead, right, right, right. So that's an aspect of public health. When you go outside, you'd rather not just like breathe in toxins that are going to kill you, okay? So that's public health. Uh, you don't want rats running around on the streets uh, giving everybody disease, okay? So that's public health. But ultimately, health boils down to the individual and everyone has a different body and a different um, immunological map, right? Um, and and the, if, if we get sick, the only way the doctor has to know what it is we have and how to fix it is for us to get, you know, go in and get, you know, therapeutics that are designed for ourselves. It, health is an individual matter. It's not a collective matter, ultimately. Do you think and, and Bill Gates is not going to make us healthier. You know, do you think that public safety should also include things like social chaos, as in crime, abuse, anxiety, depression, uh, prosperity, because yeah. it, it impacts overall health. If you can't find a job, you're depressed, yeah. you're anxious, you might kill yourself, you might not eat properly. You know, so there's that perpetual cycle that That's right. ignoring That's right. economic truth also feeds into a destructive public uh, public health. You're right. So uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. So my good friend, Martin Kuldor from, from Harvard. Uh, and after after this uh, podcast, I'm headed over to his house, actually. He's just a wonderful man. But he said to me, he goes, I, and he's, he's really a statistician and, and an epidemiologist and like a, a number crunching scientist. Like, I've, it's completely unlike me, you know. Um, and I, by the way, I don't even know his politics, but we're like best friends. Um, politics is too boring for us to talk about, so we just talk about everything else. But he's, early on in the pandemic, he said, look, he said there, <laughs> you'll love this one because you both are students of, of Henry Hazlitt and you've had yeah, yeah, yeah. one lesson, right? Okay, so he says to me, he goes, you know, Jeffrey, I think people have really lost sense of what public health is. Public health is not just focusing on one pathogen, but on all the, the effects of, of sickness and pathogens on, on human life, including the psychological health. And not just in the short term, but in the long term. And I was like, that's really interesting point, Martin. You just repeated exactly the one lesson from Henry Hazlitt about economics, except as it pertains to public health. It's identical. identical. We're, we're so micro-driven that we always forget that by being fixated on the micro, like if you force an outcome in the short term, it usually always comes at the consequence of a long-term cost. Correct. Right. Yeah.
So if you focus on the long term, you may have to sacrifice in the short term, but you, right. you're fueling the long term benefit. That's so right. It's, it, it, it's so I because I'm I'm focusing a lot on behavioral economics. So I developed two theories in terms of economic laws. One is the law of scarcity, and the other mm. one is the law of equivalent exchange. <clears throat> so there's always a transfer a transfer of energy. Always, no matter what in economics, you cannot get anything out of nothing. That's basically comes back to chemistry and um, alchemy back in the day. So if you want a short-term outcome, you have to sacrifice the long-term goal. If you want a long-term outcome, you need to sacrifice the short-term goal. Mm. It's one or the other. You cannot get both. You cannot have everything you want in the short-term and everything in the long-term. It's one or the other. Yeah. So with this COVID stuff, we focused on one pathogen to the exclusion of everything else. No flu, by the way. They stopped counting flu last year and they decided to bring it back this year. But yeah, go so ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to throw that. I in. was at the doctor the other day getting this idiotic COVID test, which, by the way, you can't believe it after a year and a half. It's still hard to get a COVID test in the United States. It's still difficult, right? So I was, you know, so the doctor uh, came in and said, well, hi, Jeffrey. I'm Dr. Antonio. He's mean, meanwhile, social distancing for me. I'm like, I'm not sure what kind of doctor you are. He's like, he's like eight feet over there. I'm like, do you want to look at my throat, maybe? <laughs> How about a little stethoscope on my chest? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> he's on COVID or what? I don't know what this guy. Uh, but he said, "So, do you have any symptoms?" And I said, "Symptoms of what?" And he said, "COVID." Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no. And, and then he said, "Well, okay, okay. So you've had your COVID test. Okay, so um, go wait in your car." And I said. Uh, well, you know, doctor, thank you very much, but I, your waiting room is so comfortable. It's got the TV going, it's, it's nice chairs and everything. I think I'll just wait in there. He goes, no, you can't do that. I, I need to keep you safe. And I said, safe, safe. from what? And he said, COVID. <laughs> I said, there's COVID here? He goes, we're... So anyway, these people are insane. I, I, like to, I like to call it uh, COVID derangement syndrome, really. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really what it is. It's COVID hysteria at this point. Yeah, um, it, which, is. Which is it is. It is. It's just crazy. It's I, I, I want to just wrap this up with another kind of topic that deals with freedom in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's obviously crypto. Um, I understand mm -hmm. that you're, you're obviously following that yeah. pretty closely. I'm sure that uh, everyone's having a good time if you're invested in that space right now. It's been absolutely sure. incredible. Oh, sure. uh, but the idea of a decentralized financial system is obviously a huge conflict for the working elites, the working class, whatever we want to call them. Oh, yeah. um, the idea that there's more regulation coming in there uh, kind of violates the idea that it was just supposed to be wholly decentralized uh, to be a free market system. So, I mean, mm. I'm not asking you to predict the price of Bitcoin. I'm not, mm. This is not the question, but the question is, at what point does the government start intervening in this system before they say, uh-uh, we're not taking... We're, we're, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to create our own digital dollar yeah, and that so, digital dollar is going to be linked to your social credit score or something like that. Um, so what they're trying to do is, uh, so they've been very impressed. They don't care about like crypto as such, you know, just like sort of tokens making money for everybody there. And, you know, and, and they're always glad to be uh, making money. That's why, that's why the uh, Bitcoin ETF just got legalized in, in this country. And there's going to be another five and then 10 and then 20 and then, than 200 and so on, uh, because you know the ruling class loves money. So uh, crypto's taking off, so they're, they're going to permission that. It, and, but what they really, really hate are the stable coins. 
that's that's what's driving them crazy because the stable coins do everything that the uh, central bank was supposed to do provide very efficient clearing you know instant um uh, 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 transactions you know, it, you know, transactions with uh, with very low uh, risk and um, uh, sorry, I wasn't quite prepared to talk about this, but uh, settlement, right? Easy, yeah, easy yeah, settlement. you know, instantaneous settlement uh, with with very low risk and uh, uh, on counterparty risk is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, I was in public health space. Now you're getting me <laughs> into my tech, techno head. Uh, so reduce counterparty risk basically to zero. Uh, the transaction fees are, are virtually zero under the stable coins and so on. So it's like if you compare a stable coin transaction to something like uh, an old fashioned, um, uh, what is that, you know, wire transfer, it's, it's a joke, right? So stable coins have innovated, it's, it's like a Maserati compared to a model, model T. You know, and so the states and central banks are very jealous of stable coins. So they want their own stable coins, but they're very behind the uh, behind the eight ball here. So, so the Fed and the uh, the European Central Bank and every central bank in the world wants to create their own uh, crypto token that's backed by their own national currency to to reduce the you know counterparty their own counterparty risk and and uh, provide. Much better system for uh, international remittances, you know. So, so they, they want to they they want to destroy the stable coins more than anything else, and replace them with their own stable coin. But they don't know how to do it because the sector is growing too fast, and they don't really want to compete because they know they can't. So it's going to be interesting. I I I think they're going to continue to create messes, but they can slow it down. They can throttle. Uh, services they can they can intimidate people but ultimately they're not gonna be able to stop it i mean crypto has changed the financial and monetary world forever yeah i have i have a theory that if i if we look because obviously everyone's fully aware now that we have a lot of economic chaos that's starting to thrive and right. under that economic chaos with all the debt as a consequence of all these government mandates and regulations and everything they've created policies and everything like that I have a sensation that they're going to use that narrative to sort of jump in and say, because the economy is at risk, because we have all these problems, the crypto space and this decentralization of our currency puts at risk everything we've built. Mm -hmm. And under that, we cannot allow crypto to thrive because it can't further burn the overall economy or create further chaos. Because I, we are in the early stages of the crypto industry. And it's typical that there's going to be a lot of failure and mistakes and a lot of learning curve to be made. And they're going to use that to expand the fear and say that we need to eliminate this or control this in order to mitigate any economic threat in the face of an expanding power like China and the fact that trade, a lot of the world is deglobalizing, closing off trades, supply problems, currency problems, debt problems, um, old age pension liabilities, health liabilities. You know, right. like I have an idea, it's an observe, it's an observation to be made, but I have a sensation they might use it because or else they have a competition and it takes away power from them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that's right. But the, the problem is that when you have these regulators going on about like, I'm sorry, but these, these crypto tokens are not safe for you as an investor. Okay, that's what we like about them. Mm -hmm. right? That's why we're invested in them. I was just on television yesterday. It actually is very interesting. It was a China State television, which is funny. Uh, 
but they did like a 30 minute interview with me on crypto and and didn't censor it at all which is strange but um and she said so what it, what do you say about the volatility problem and i said well you say it's a problem actually Everybody loves the volatility. I mean, that's the that's what's great. If you don't want volatile, you can go to the stable coins. But if you, but if you want money, if you want to make money, you better get into the, one of the riskier coins. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they want you to know, take so, that risk away. Yeah, they the want to take that risk away. But you know, but they've been completely discredited. And I tell you, uh, the inflation problem is is very serious for the financial elite. Uh, for whatever reason, Americans despise rising prices. They just like, it makes people freak out. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, left or right. Uh, um, people hate inflation and it leads to political revolutions. So when you have the people responsible for, uh, you, know, you know, they claim they're there to provide you a stable currency value and they failed. And now they say, oh, trust us. We're going to regulate your cryptos. Uh, to give you a safe crypto space. I mean, nobody can believe that, right? No. That's just not a believable claim. So I think they've got serious problems, They're real serious problems. But gentlemen, I think it's going to be another 50 years in, in the making, or maybe 25 years, but we are going to a competitive currency world where, where private currencies and private uh, systems of finance and, and monetary uh, regimes are going to compete with public ones side by side. And we're going to win. I mean, it, it's going to be, a difficult battle and it's going to be a lot of carnage along the way but we are going to win in the end the good idea cannot be suppressed and that's what crypto is in a way it's it's funny it's like the instantiation of an idea you can't kill an idea you can't kill crypto any more than you can kill algebra you know it's just not going to work it's impossible at this point for sure yeah. you can kill your currency i mean look at what's going on with turkey the turkish lira is it's hitting all-time lows every week now there's a con there's there's going to be a conflict there just because of that and i don't know maybe there is a crypto revolution on the way but um this has been really interesting jeffrey i know that uh we're well over our our time slot with you but we really appreciate your time i know that oh thanks we'd love to have you back on when i'd love to be yeah when when the world does uh, calm down a little bit more to kind of see what has transpired but this was very very interesting and we appreciate you so much and i'm I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of your of your book there well please do let me let me advertise one other thing yeah go ahead absolutely um so the brownstone institute was founded you know just um, over the summer and then i got this book and and the uh on email uh from Paul Fridgers in England, Gigi Foster in, in uh, uh, Australia, and Michael Baker. And I stayed up all night reading it. And I just knew for sure that I needed to publish it. And now it's published. And it's The Great COVID Panic. Nice. And it's a, it's a big book. But actually, I, it's only $20 on Amazon or $5 uh, Kindle download. But it, it comes as close to anything else as I've seen to explaining... Uh, all the factors that went into lockdowns and and uh, the chaos of our current times and really blows it all up. And like, I, I, when I read that book in draft and then I read it in print, I realized that there's nobody who could read this and not be shaken fundamentally. Like the world has been trolled, you know? And so that's why I published it. So, um, and it's selling so well, I'm so pleased with it. Great COVID panic.
Nice. So that's a Thank you so much. I'm, I'm prouder of that than I am of my own book. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, where can our listeners find you since uh, yeah, brownstone.org is my website? I'm also Brownstone has a uh, Twitter account and I'm on Twitter for now. Uh, so, um, and anybody can uh, write me or drop me a note at tuckerbrownstone.org. So, I'm really happy to correspond with anyone. Awesome. Jeffrey, thank you so much. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your Saturday to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much, gentlemen. Right. Bye-bye. Take you care. Very much.